Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 10 Fear and Anxiety Disorders. Anxiety disorders are among the most common psychological problems for which people seek out psychotherapy. The problem is exceedingly complex, which is why in this episode, we only want to touch on some of the more general aspects of fear and anxiety disorders. While many psychopathological phenomena, such as hearing voices or delusions, come across as strange and difficult to understand, the feeling of fear is, after all, something that each one of us knows. Everyone knows what fear is. If it were not for fear, we would run across the street without giving it a second thought. Take on wild animals or tough guys. Climb around above deep chasms and so on. Those who know no fear will, like someone who cannot feel pain, have a more difficult and perhaps much shorter life. At the same time, for those who know too much, their life is also cast in shadow. Fear ensures that we avoid certain situations, and this can severely limit the opportunities we have in life. Those who are afraid of spiders will not sweep into dark corners. Those who get scared in crowds can no longer go shopping. Those who dread loss can no longer let go of anything. Those who are afraid of dependency cannot make commitments. And then there are those fears that do not appear to have an object, that overcome us with the diffuse, barely tangible violence, so-called panic states, which, if we don't suffer from a panic disorder, we only know from the most dire and threatening situations. Fear is an alarm system that places us in a state of ready preparedness on various physical and psychological levels. One also speaks of the so-called fight-or-flight system, a primeval chain of reactions in our nervous system, which in threatening situations prepares us at lightning speed for either escape or, when necessary, for battle. One can differentiate fear on different levels, from more diffuse, bodily-felt, non-representational fears to fears that relate to a concrete object. One can roughly distinguish between three states of fear, which have fluid distinctions. Number one, object-related fear. Here, the fear is directed at a particular object that one is afraid of. It can be a very plausible fear. For example, the fear of spiders when walking barefoot through the Brazilian jungle, or being run over by a car when crossing the street on red, or of being caught when traveling without a ticket. In the case of less plausible fears, on the other hand, one speaks of phobias, which we will hear about in a moment. What is significant is that there is a clear relation to an object which, irrationally or not, is feared. If one evades the object, or simply buys a ticket, then there are no more feelings of fear. Number two, object-seeking fear, 
or activated alarm. This is a physical pattern of reactions, and usually in a rather diffuse state, which is not fixed on specific external objects. Here, body and psyche are in a state of highly readied responsiveness. The muscles are tense. The heart beats fast. One trembles, sweats, breathing is shallow, and perception is altered. But it is not yet clear what the fear is directed at. In contrast to object-related fear, this state of alarm has no object to avoid, or at least, not yet. The bodily psychic system is rather on the alert, looking for the object that it can designate as a threat, and if necessary, can fight or flee from. This form of fear can in many situations also be normal and helpful, but can also constitute the basis for anxiety disorders. Number three, panic. This is the most intense of all forms of anxiety, in which massive bodily and psychological reactions occur. We experience fear of death, sometimes act rashly, instinctively. The bodily psychic system is aimed at escape at all costs. It is a kind of survival instinct in life-threatening situations, but which can also have devastating consequences, as the example of stampedes shows. Panic describes a state in which our capacity for fear, which is supposed to safeguard us from danger, has effectively failed. Peril has arrived, has come too close, overpowering us. Risk could not be averted in time. In a way, this state of panicked terror signals that the situation that was feared, real or perceived, has already come to pass. Here, too, there are normal and pathological forms of panic. We can illustrate these three forms of fear with an example. Let us imagine a prehistoric ancestor walking barefoot through a forest and armed only with a spear. If he knows the situation, the forest, the different paths, and the dangerous animals, then he will perhaps at most experience object-related fear of certain snakes or spiders, which he knows could be lurking in the underbrush. He will try to move as to avoid contact with these dangers. Let us now imagine that our prehistoric ancestor has lost his way and is wandering through a section of the forest that is completely unknown to him. He does not know what dangerous animals are lurking there, whether they could pounce on him from within the underbrush, from on a tree, or from somewhere else. He is in a state of alarm, feels object-seeking fear. His body is in a state of highly readied responsiveness. His senses are sharpened. Every snap or crunch startles him. Was that something? Or did he just imagine it? His hand clings to the spear, poised to fight or flee. Suddenly, a tiger jumps out from behind a tree. Our prehistoric man is completely surprised. He is suddenly confronted with a deadly threat. His effort to avoid the unknown danger has failed. The tiger is much too big to enter into combat with. All defensive actions are in vain. He devolves into a panicked state of terror, flees head over heels, crisscrossing straight through the jungle, and only hopes that today the tiger has already had a good breakfast. 
The example illustrates that all three forms of fear are appropriate and normal under certain circumstances. It could also be said that the prehistoric man in the first instance, where he knows what he is afraid of, is in the best position, whereas the startled and overpowered prehistoric man in the worst. But let us jump forward a few millennia and ask ourselves how these forms of normal and evolutionarily meaningful fear are related to the anxiety disorders of our time. All three of these forms of fear can be pathological, and yet the crucial point here is that the external object or external situation does not seem to justify the corresponding fear. The fact that prehistoric man in the jungle is afraid of dangerous spiders is by no means pathological, but is rather a very healthy reaction. Spending the night in the living room because a small spider has set up camp in the corner of the bedroom, perhaps less so. We will see that while pathological fears may indeed not appear plausible from the outside, they do in fact have an inner, i.e. psychological significance. And that is the decisive factor, also for the treatment of anxiety disorders. What is feared or arouses fear lies within and is, for the most part, even unconscious to oneself. When we have an anxiety disorder, the tiger attacks us from within the invisible thicket of our mind, as it were, while we direct our attention outwards. We would now like, with the aid of our three forms of fear, to examine the different manifestations of anxiety disorders and how psychoanalysis understands them. Number one, phobias. A persistent and pronounced fear of an object that is in actuality not really threatening is called a phobia. There are whole lists of things to be afraid of, and almost everyone has some more or less pronounced phobias. Spiders, certain numbers, blood, or the Pope, the so-called papaphobia. Almost any object can become the object of a phobia, although in most cases they are specific things that are highly charged symbolically, such as spiders, blood, or the Pope. For a psychoanalytic understanding of phobias, which here can only be touched upon, the word symbolic is of crucial importance. The story of a phobia's formation varies greatly from person to person, but it is known that certain classes of phobias develop during different periods of life. In most cases, animal phobias, like the fear of spiders, develop relatively early in childhood. It is important to note, however, that a psychological mechanism is involved in most of these object-related fears, one which was first described by Freud and then further differentiated by later analysts, so-called displacement. This refers to a feature of the psyche in which certain feelings can be displaced from one object to another, a mechanism that plays an important role in childhood. For example, a hostile impulse, rage, which a child actually has against its mother or father, is directed towards its doll, which in place of the parents is beaten or shouted at angrily, and is then, once again, treated lovingly and remorsefully. The child has displaced their anger from the parents onto the doll. This, perhaps, because the child is too afraid of hurting the real parents, 
or the parents do not give the child any space to vent their anger, say perhaps because they are not even present. In this context, the doll is symbolic of the parents. Now this mechanism of displacement plays a role for many phobias. The feared object, the spider, the syringe, the bird, stands for something else that is the real source of fear. There is no universally valid classification. Symbol guides, such as when the spider always stands for the mother, are psychoanalytic popular science. It is correct that the feared object has certain symbolic qualities that make it particularly suitable for specific fears. The spider as the cunning animal that lurks in the dark, setting traps for its victims that become ensnared in its web and sucked dry. The syringe as an object that penetrates the body, thus violating our most intimate boundary, where something is injected or sucked out. Behind the fear of such objects can lie completely different, deeper-seated fears and issues. Fear of the loss of self, or the fear that one's own boundaries are fragile. But these are all generalizations. The individual history and meaning of a phobia are usually only then revealed once it has been brought into relation to one's life story and to one's own conflicts. What is significant is that the phobias are, as it were, highly functional symptoms. That which is feared, perhaps a deep-seated inner psychological fear, is displaced onto a symbolic outer object that lies beyond the inner world of the psyche. This object can be avoided, and so too can the feelings of fear. In psychoanalysis, one also speaks of fear adhesion, the extent to which our psyche succeeds in affixing fears to an object, getting them off our backs and giving them a clear form so that we can handle them. Phobias only become really problematic when they are very pronounced and interfere in large parts of our lives. This is more often than not also a sign that the fear adhesion was inadequately successful. This also applies to less specific types of phobia, such as agoraphobia, that is the fear of crowds or of wide open spaces, which are more often linked with diffuse anxiety or panic. Social phobias, which we will talk about another time, form yet a further separate category. Number two, diffuse somatic anxiety as a form of our activated alarm system. This manifestation of anxiety symptoms is also very common. A person experiences fear seemingly without cause, undergoes strange bodily states, frequent dizziness, sweating, or feelings of derealization, as well as other psycho-vegetative symptoms, nausea, impaired vision, etc. A person with such symptoms feels like the prehistoric man in our example, running through an unfamiliar forest full of fear, only that they do not find themselves in a threatening forest, but perhaps at home, at work, or somewhere in public. And here, too, the causes are in most cases underlying conflicts and fears that are, for the time being, unconscious. However, the psyche of a person with diffuse fears is less successful at attaching the fear, displacing it onto a specific external object. 
he has, in effect, nothing that he can avoid. And this is precisely what makes the condition difficult to bear. The fear remains in a fluid, untethered form, accompanied by persistent states of tension, vegetative symptoms, and indelible feelings of anxiety. Like the prehistoric man in the forest, the psyche is here searching for the threatening object to which it can attach its fear and activate a corresponding avoidance behavior. An obvious and frequently selected form of anxiety adherence is, in this case, one's own body. This fluid fear is attached to certain bodily symptoms that do in fact accompany feelings of fear, say the heart or breathing or the gastrointestinal system. The fear of disease emerges like a heart condition or a tumor. Such fear of illness can be completely unrealistic and be disproven by multiple medical diagnostics, and yet, nevertheless, still not be surrendered. For this is the psyche's attempt to affix fear, to give fear a shape, sometimes a name, even if that means heart disease. Even so, something to which we can in some way relate, seeking out a doctor or hospital or the like. But this form of fear adherence is less psychologically functional and more fragile than, say, a phobia, for one cannot really avoid one's own body or get out of its way, like a spider. In some cases, fear of illness develops into a whole system with regular corresponding visits to the doctor and countermeasures that in turn become almost phobic in character, so-called hypochondria. Another way to attach fear is through highly ritualized behavior. Here a connection can be traced to compulsion and compulsive symptoms, which very often go hand in hand with symptoms of fear. The meaning and origin of such anxiety disorders vary greatly from person to person, and here too there are no general answers. An important consideration, however, is the question of whether the presence of some reassuring person like a partner or a good friend, has any impact during such states of anxiety. Do fears occur especially when the person is alone, feels defenseless and at the mercy of others, whereas they feel greater security in the presence of trusted people? Are certain competent people needed who can calm the system of anxiety, like doctors or therapists? Or the presence of symbolic antidotes? such as the sedative tablets that are always in their wallet? This is where the relationship dimension of fears becomes apparent. Though not always evident at first glance, the phenomena of fear is often evidence of the all-encompassing dimension of attachment, that deeply rooted feeling of security, or defenselessness, loneliness, grief, or loss. We heard about this aspect in Episode 5 on Attachment. Accordingly, the relationship to the therapist will play a central role in the psychotherapeutic treatment of anxiety disorders. Number 3. Panic If phobias are more characteristic of stable forms of fear adherence, and diffuse somatic fears are more characteristic of fragile forms, then panic states are more characteristic of the, at least, 
temporary breakdown of fear adherence, occurring most commonly in sudden attacks. Identifying and avoiding the danger doesn't succeed at all anymore. The tiger leaps, as it were, directly at our neck. Panic accompanies the sense that at this very moment one will die, become crazy, or in one way or another be erased. To a certain extent, panic catches the afflicted person on the wrong foot, often in a diminished state of defensive readiness when tired, asleep, or in states of exhaustion, whereas a high state of activeness, like working intensively, often counters the sense of fear. Often, there is also an unnoticed trigger that sets off a chain of thoughts and feelings leading to an escalation of panic. Panic is certainly among the worst psychological symptoms and can itself even have traumatic consequences. Here, fear produces new fear. A state of panic is so horrible that those affected live in fear of a new panic attack. The stimulus threshold for sensing new threats drops. Everything appears threatening. No longer able to rely on one's own body and mind, the expectation of being stricken by a dangerous physical or mental illness is far more plausible. Although panic attacks are the most intense and concise form of fear, they usually do not appear in isolation, but rather in conjunction with other kinds of fear. They are, in a way, the tip of the iceberg. There are certain procedures and calming techniques that can be used to directly counter panic attacks. Often, just knowing the physical mechanisms of anxiety can help contribute to some reduction in anxiety. A therapist of any school will, for a start, interact in a regulative capacity with a patient in a state of panic. Panic is the soul in a state of emergency, and this is definitely not a state in which one can search for underlining causes. Nevertheless, psychoanalytic treatment would not content itself with merely combating the symptoms of anxiety. For, as we have heard, these are usually not the causes of suffering at all, but only the alarm system pointing to certain other issues or indicating that the psychological balance of a person has begun to falter. One does not extinguish a fire by switching off the fire alarm. Often what is helpful in the long term is not specific countermeasures and psychotechnical tricks, but the presence of a therapist with whom the patient feels safe and who can, in the first instance, have a supportive influence over the fear. If the therapeutic work is successful, patients can internalize some of these feelings of security and calm themselves down in stressful situations. The therapeutic relationship and understanding the symptoms are, at least in psychoanalysis, the key to recovery. Oftentimes, anxiety symptoms rapidly subside during the course of a therapy, while other feelings and issues come to the fore such as a deep feeling of sorrow or forlornness. In conclusion, we would like to point out that our sketch of anxiety symptoms is far from exhaustive. There are many anxiety phenomena which do not fit in, and which we have not even addressed, like psychotic anxiety states or fear of shame, guilt, or punishment, 
as well as anxiousness and worrisomeness as enduring character traits, or fears that are, in general, related to change and transformation. The encounter with the unknown and the new, which often play a role at decisive turning points in a therapy, when previous forms of thinking and living are gradually transformed. The New Year's Eve of the soul, so to speak. And, as in every New Year's Eve, we must always answer that feeling of trepidation with loud countermeasures. This podcast is written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. Translated and read by Solomon Lawrence.